me uh, spiritually and, and physically. I'm going to read the last two verses. If you weren't here last week, you can either watch it or, um, or, or just wait until we're in 23 and you're going to get the same thing again, you know. Um, but, but Ezekiel chapter 16, uh, verses uh, 62 to 63 uh, it, it, I mean, it's just amazing how faithful God is to faithless people, how, how faithful God is uh, to those that are sinners unworthy of his grace, how faithful God is to those that rebel against him, how faithful God is to those that are hard-hearted, stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious. This is after all those things that God had described Israel as you know, literally being a prostitute, literally going after every single other nation other than God himself, whoring themselves after the other idols. In verse 63, it says, and I will reaffirm my covenant with you. And you will know that I am the Lord. You will remember your sins and cover your mouth in silent shame when I forgive you of all that you have done. Isn't the grace of God amazing? It's the kindness of God that draws us to repentance. But what's the ultimate aim? What's the ultimate goal? Why does he do this? Why does God forgive us? Why is he so gracious to us? who he is i the sovereign lord have spoken and so father tonight as we approach another section in the the book of ezekiel a, a really tough book to read uh, not only in terms of its its mystery but in, in terms of you know just just being there at the time when ezekiel is writing this in in a foreign land a priest without a a temple and then to understand that he has to minister to people that um, have left their first love, have left their God, and gone after other gods, and, and not in any way that God overshadows that or, or uh, lessens that sin. In fact, he, he spells it out in very graphic terms, what we do whenever we turn our back on God. And yet you are still faithful to the faithless spouse. You are, you are still faithful to those of us that have rebelled and turned against you. Lord, we're so grateful for that. Thank you for loving us and being here for us. And, and I thank you so much for these, my friends and my family that are here, those that are uh, online tonight. I ask that you just speak to them mightily tonight. Speak to them in, in such a way where it, it feels personal and intimate to them. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. In, in 2 Timothy, it, um, it literally defines who uh, God is in terms of his, his faithfulness. There are certain attributes that God has. We know that. God is omnipotent, right? He's omniscient. He, he is uh, omnipresent. That means he's, he's everywhere at once. He knows all things and he's all powerful. And th those define who God is. He is separate. He is set apart. He is unlike anything. 
He's the only one that's never been created. And there's also another amazing attribute that God has. It's his faithfulness. We saw it last week, and I just want to remind you of this. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the verse 13, it says, If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. I don't know if you've ever had a friend that was, you know, nice to you despite the fact that you hated them. Or, or maybe it was you that was nice to someone that, you know, hated you. There's an aspect of faithfulness that defines what it means to be a follower of God or a follower of Jesus Christ. Why? Because at the end of that verse, it says an amazing fact about God. Why is God faithful? For he cannot deny who he is. It is part of his very being to be faithful. If he loses his faithfulness, he is no longer God. God, God is faithful because of who he is. And so every aspect of faithfulness, whether it's in, in marriage or in a church setting or in a friendship, whatever it may be, there's a definition of who God is in faithfulness. You are displaying a small sliver of who God is by being faithful. And God was faithful in an amazing way to the nation of Israel and to us uh, as well. The next chapter, it continues on. And, and just like in a lot of the, the parables or these riddles or these um, examples that Ezekiel uses, whether it's the bread roasted over a dung or, or the, the clay pots or the various implements where he had to build this, you know, siege literally game that was displayed for everyone to see and, and sleep on his right side and then sleep on his left side, drink a certain amount of water, a certain amount of food, all these things to show what was happening in his homeland of Israel some 900 miles away. We get another uh, parable, another riddle in uh, the Old Testament, by the way, in chapter 17. Then this message came to me from the Lord, son of man, give this riddle and tell this story to the people of Israel. Give them this message from the sovereign uh, Lord. And we're going to see this picture now, the amazing thing, just like with the New Testament, when Jesus would tell parables, there was an explanation to the parable. We all kind of understand that. We kind of all expect that. Uh, and so it, it, it's really an interesting way to, to view this chapter is to actually put it in two columns. Uh, where, where you have the, the first 10 verses on one side and then the next uh, 10 verses, 14 verses on the other side. And you can kind of compare them uh, because, because the way that we're going to read it is actually side by side. It, it's easier to be able to understand the parable by looking at a couple of verses and then the explanation right after. So we're going to be reading the whole chapter. We're just going to be doing it in part so that we can see it better. Verses 3 and 4 
describe the beginning of the parable. It says, A great eagle with broad wings and long feathers, covered with many colored plumage, came to Lebanon. He seized the top of a cedar tree and plucked off its high branches. He carried it away to a city filled with merchants. He planted it in a city of uh, traders. Uh, the nation of Lebanon was known for its cedar. In fact, a lot of the cedar that was used, or all the cedar that was used in the temple itself, King Solomon had hired the king of Jordan, or excuse me, Lebanon, to cut down cedar trees for the temple itself, specifically for uh, the temple. Now, there's a reason for this. Cedar is very insect repellent. It is a very durable wood. Not only that, but it has a fragrance about it. How many of you have ever had a cedar chest or, or cedar, you know, shelving or, or cedar closet if you're really, really rich, you know? There, there's a scent that automatically comes out of the wood. The explanation for these two verses are described in verses 11 and 12. So I, I don't know how your Bible is, is lined up, uh, but it's not a lot of skipping. We're just going to see, you know, the first two verses and compare them to the first two verses of the, uh, the prose section. And it's kind of easy to tell because uh, the, the font or the formatting, uh, one side is in a poem formatting or a story formatting, and the other side is in a prose or a regular uh, explanation. So verses 3 and 4 described in verses 11 and 12, it says, Then this message came to me from the Lord, say to these rebels of Israel, Do you understand the meaning of this riddle of the eagles? The king of Babylon came to Jerusalem, took away her king and princes, and brought them to Babylon. So who is the eagle in this story? It is Babylon. And who is the branch? It's Jerusalem or Israel. This parable of this massive, mighty eagle coming and snatching this branch from atop of a cedar tree and literally carrying it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away is a parable of what Babylon did to Jerusalem. And you, if you, those of you that were here when we were going through the book of, of Jeremiah, you remember the siege, the, the army of Babylon literally surrounding uh, the city of Jerusalem. In verses 5 through 6, it continues on there. He also took a seedling from the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside a broad river where it could grow like a willow tree. It took root there and grew into a low and spreading vine. Its branches turned up toward the eagle and its roots grew down into the ground. It produced strong branches and put out shoots. Now you probably kind of already know what the description here is. This eagle has taken this branch, Jerusalem, and taken it to the river Kibar in Babylon, literally planting the Israelites in a foreign country. Now we know who is directing all this. This is God. God, God is using Babylon to establish Israel in Babylon. Not only were there people like Ezekiel in Babylon, but there were people like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. 
the very next book in the Bible, by the way. Where, where was Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Vindigo? They were in the upper echelons of the Babylonian Empire, right? They, they were the counselors, the ones that interpreted the dreams for uh, the king of Babylon. Verses 13 and 14, it describes it this way. He made a treaty with a member of the royal family, forced him to take an oath of loyalty. He also exiled Israel's most influential leaders. These were the people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So Israel would not become strong again in revolt. Only by keeping her treaty with Babylon could Israel uh, survive. Verses 7 and 8. It continues on with the parable. It says, but then another great eagle came with broad wings and full plumage. The vine now sent its roots and its branches toward him for water. And even though he had already planted in good soil and in plenty of water, so it could grow into a splendid vine and produce rich leaves and luscious fruit. This is described in verse 15 there. Nevertheless, this man of Israel's royal family rebelled against Babylon, sending ambassadors to Egypt to request a great army and many horses. Can Israel break her sworn treaties like that and get away with it? And just like two wild animals that are fighting over territory, these two massive eagles that are so beautiful in their uh, plumage. I don't know if you've ever seen birds fight, uh, but the imagery is amazing with these two massive eagles with their talons and their beautiful plumage and they're fighting over this branch over Jerusalem you see Jerusalem had sent messengers to uh, Egypt and had started to break their treaties with uh, Babylon verses 9 and 10 the parable continues so now the sovereign lord asks Will this vine grow and prosper? What happens when animals fight? Not, not just to the animals, but to the foliage around them. Whether it's bears or goats or lions or whatever it is, eagles, you know, all the massive tearing and ripping, the dust that comes up. No, I will pull it up, roots and all. I will cut off its fruit and let its leaves wither and die. I will pull it up easily. Without a strong army or a large army. But when the vine is transplanted, will it thrive? No, it will wither away when the east wind blows against it. It will die in the same good soil where it had grown so well. Uh, what's going to happen to the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem? You know what will happen when we were here going through the book of, of Jeremiah. The explanation, though, is in verse 16 to the end of uh, uh, that book there or the end of that chapter. It says, no, for as surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, the king of Israel, uh, as I live, says the sovereign Lord, the king of Israel will die in Babylon, the land of the king who put him in power and whose treaty he disregarded and broke 
Pharaoh and all his mighty army will fail to help Israel when the king of Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem again and destroys many lives. For the king of Israel disregarded his treaty, broke it after swearing to obey. Therefore, he will not escape. Do you understand what's going to happen to the very last king of the line of David until Jesus Christ sits on the throne, the Messiah comes again. The very last king from the line of David is going to die in Babylon. Of course, after his eyes were plucked out and his last two sons killed before them. Verse 19, the explanation continues. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. As surely as I live, I will punish him for breaking my covenant and disregarding the solemn oath he made in my name. Do you know why chapter 17 follows chapter 16? Because it shows the unfaithfulness of Israel compared to the faithfulness of God. They were willing to make a treaty and break it just like that. They were make, willing to make a promise and break it just like that. Were they being faithful? No, they weren't. In fact, they disregarded the covenant and they broke the solemn oath. Have you ever looked at, you know, I, I, I know that there's lots of books in the Bible, but the divisions of uh, the books of the Bible... You know, we, we call the first section, the first uh, 39 books of the Bible, Genesis to Malachi, we call it a certain section, right? We call it the Old Testament, right? And then we, we the next 27 books, Matthew to Revelation, we call those the New Testament. This word testament literally means covenant. It, it literally means promise. I, I don't know if you have a, you know, rich parents or grandparents or an uncle or something like that, you know. And, 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 you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you kind of wish that you did because they might put you into their uh, a, uh, a will and, wow, isn't that amazing? But, but how is that testament, that will... Uh, fulfilled. What has to happen? You guys know, we've been talking about it for weeks and weeks and weeks. Someone has to die in order for you to get the money. Right? Do, do you understand the covenant that God is talking about, not only with Israel, but also with, with those that follow him, us, is predicated on the blood of Jesus Christ. And someone had to die, Jesus, for us. And who's the one that remains faithful to the promise? Yeah, God does. Israel, of course, they've disregarded it. Verse 20, it continues on. I will throw my net over him, capture him in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon, put him on trial for his treason against me. All his best warriors will be killed in battle. Those who survive will be scattered to the four winds. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. Everything is about who God is. 
This is what the Sovereign Lord says, verse 22, I will take a branch from the top of a tall cedar and I will plant it on top of Israel's highest mountain. Again, another branch. We all know who that is. We've been seeing it throughout the book of Ezekiel. It's the promise of the Messiah, Jesus Christ coming to earth, the branch. Who's going to plant this branch, though? It's not an eagle. God's going to plant the branch. It will become a majestic cedar, sending forth its branches and producing seed. Birds of every sort will nest in it, finding shelter in the shade of its branches. And all the trees will know that it is I, the Lord, who cuts the tall tree down and makes the short tree grow. It is I who makes the green tree wither and gives the dead tree, new life. Isn't God an amazing horticulturalist? He created everything, by the way. He has the best green thumb of anyone. And even though this, yes, is a, is a parable, it describes who God is in his very nature. He makes things that are dead alive, including every single one of you in this room. Isn't that amazing about God? He's faithful. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do what I said. There's an amazing verse in Isaiah. We were there, I don't remember, a year ago or more. It's probably been over a year now. Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 2. Looking forward to the Messiah, looking forward to the one who would come from the line of David. Remember, the line has ended out of the trump of David's, or excuse me, the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root, described in this parable that we just read. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Who will that be? The Messiah. There's an even better uh, description in Zechariah, verses 6, 12 through 13. Tell him, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Here is the man called the branch. He will branch out from where he is and build the temple of the Lord. Remember, the temple had been destroyed during the time of Jeremiah, during the time of Ezekiel. That's, that's why Ezekiel is in Babylon. He is a priest at the age of 30 that's supposed to be serving in the temple, but the temple has been destroyed. That beautiful temple that was made out of that cedar from Lebanon that was covered in, in gold, built by King Solomon himself. And it had been demolished, destroyed by the Babylonians. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to build a, a new temple. Look at this beautiful temple. Verse 13. Yes, he will build the temple of the Lord. Uh, then he will receive royal arm, honor and he will sit as a king on the throne. We all know that Jesus Christ, descended from the line of David, is a king. Thank God. But he also holds another office as well. 
an office that could never mix with the kingly office, by the way, that were always designed to be from two separate tribes, the kings from the line of David, Judah, and the priests from the lines of Levi through Aaron. But the Messiah has to fulfill both roles. In fact, in the rest of that verse, it says, he will serve as a priest from his throne. How can that be? How, how can a priest sit on the throne if they're from two separate lines? One from the line of David, one from the line of Aaron. If you've been reading the book of Hebrews and been coming on Monday nights, you know the answer. And there will be perfect harmony between his two roles. How can a priest and a king, for some reason, have these two roles perfectly in one person, fulfilling the role of both? A perfect king and a perfect priest. Only the Messiah can do that. It had to be fulfilled only through uh, Jesus Christ. And again, you know, if you read the book of Hebrews, you can uh, see how the author of the book of Hebrews perfectly brings this out as proof of who Jesus uh, is. Ezekiel chapter 18, it continues on. Then another message came to me from the Lord. I, I, I don't know if you've ever, you know, Listen to sermon after sermon after sermon or lesson after lesson after lesson. Maybe it's a person that you like to listen to. Uh, and there's a, maybe a series or something like that. Maybe in the old days it was on a CD or a DVD or now it's all streaming and everything like that. But you can watch them one right after another, right? You know, it's kind of like how we read the Bible, you know, whether it's a, a yearly plan or, or you're trying to, you know, read a, a section a day or whatever it is. And we read it, you know, in real time. We, we read, it, read it, you know, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, 16, 17, and 18. But in many cases throughout the scriptures, there, there's long periods of time between the chapters. There, there can be long periods of time even between verses. And so chapter 17 and 18, these are written after a, a break or a, a, a period of time has now passed. And Ezekiel, after giving chapter 17 and now giving chapter 18, not after a week, not after a month, but maybe after six months to a year's time, okay? Verse 2, it describes this message. Why do you quote this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The parents have eaten sour grapes, but their children's mouths pucker at the taste. This, again, is another uh, parable or a riddle. It's not as long as the previous one. The other one was 10 verses. This is only uh, a single phrase. It's kind of like a proverb, if you will. Verse 3, it describes it this way. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, you will not quote this proverb anymore in Israel. For all people are mine to judge, both parents and children alike. And this is my rule. A person who sins is the one who will die. Now, this is kind of a no-brainer for us. We understand this, right? We, we, we live in a culture where you're responsible for your own actions, right? I mean, it makes logical sense to us. 
But for the people of Israel, a, 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 a people that are based upon where you come from, your genealogy is so important. Uh, who you are is defined in your heritage. It's defined by your grandpa or your uh, grandfather, great-grandfather or your father or some person in your past. This is why the Old Testament and even you know, the New Testament, Matthew and Luke are so full of genealogies. It defined the person. Why are these long genealogies that most people just skip over in you know, defining who Jesus is? It had to be traced. He had to be traced all the way back to David. Not only through his, his father's side, but through his mother's side as well. Or, or people like, you know, the sons of Korah. <clears throat> they, they were known as traitors. Their, their great-great-great-great-grandfather, Korah, had rebelled against Moses, right? And yet they're one of the most prolific writers of the Psalms. You see their names throughout the Psalms. The sons of Korah, the sons of Korah, the sons of Korah. Chapter 80, chapter 50. All, all these amazing Psalms written by the sons of Korah. Does God look at other people in our family to define who we are? We take this for granted, but for the people of Israel, the people that are living at this time, they were defined by who their relatives were. If you were from the line of David, from the line of Judah, you had a heritage of being a king related somehow to David. Or if you were from the tribe of Levi, you got to work in the temple. Each and every single one of the tribes was defined by a prophecy that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 48 and 49. It defined who they were. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 29 and 30 the same proverb is quoted, by the way. Remember Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they're contemporaries, just 900 miles apart. And so they had heard the same parable. In fact, the parable is repeated in uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 29. It says, the people will no longer quote this proverb. The parents have eaten sour grapes, but their children's mouths pucker at the taste. You guys like lemons? Like sour things, you know. The, the sour, the candy, the better, you know. It makes you want to pucker your mouth, right? It literally, you know, makes your mouth pucker up. Verse 30, the same description, the same result as we saw in the book of Ezekiel. All people will die for their own sins. Those who eat the sour grapes will be the ones whose mouths will pucker. For the Israelites, this was a foreign concept. If my father did something bad, then that means that I somehow have to pay for that or might even be responsible for it. Where you would have to work off not only your sins, but even your parents' sins. Because they owed more than they could pay or they owed more than they could ever work off in their own lifetime. 
Can, can you imagine the horrendous debt, the horrendous weight this, this was put on not only the people that sinned, but, but the generations to follow where they are literally paying for their older relatives. Ezekiel again describes the grace and the mercy of God. Chapter 18, verse 5, it continues on there. Suppose a certain man is righteous and does what is just and right. He does not feast in the mountains before Israel's idols or worship them. He does not commit adultery or have intercourse with a woman during her menstrual period. He is a merciful creditor, not keeping the items given as security by poor debtors. He does not rob the poor, but instead gives food to the hungry and provides clothes for the needy. He grants loans without interest, stays away from injustice, is honest and fair when judging others and faithfully obeys my decrees and my regulations, the person that every single one of us want to be friends with. This ideal person, this, this righteous person. Anyone who does these things is just and will surely live, says the sovereign Lord. But suppose that man has a son who grows up to be a robber or a murderer and refuses to do what is right. And that son does all the evil things his father would never do. He worships idols on the mountains, commits adultery, oppresses the poor and the helpless, steals from debtors by refusing to let them redeem their security, worships idols, commits detestable sins, and lends money at excessive interest. Just the opposite of the other person, by the way. The one that we would never want to be our friend. Especially if you needed money. So Chuts, a sinful person, live. No, he must die and must take full blame. You see, the righteousness of one man is his own. The sin of another man is his own. Verse 14, but suppose that sinful son in turn has a son who sees his father's wickedness. And decides against that kind of life. The son refuses to worship idols on the mountains and does not commit adultery. He does not exploit the poor, but instead is fair to debtors and does not rob them. He gives food to the hungry and provides clothes for the needy. He helps the poor, does not lend money at interest, and obeys all my regulations and decrees. Such a person will not die because of his father's sins. He will surely live. But the father will die for his many sins, for being cruel, robbing people, and doing what was clearly wrong among his people. Verse 19, what you ask? Doesn't the child pay for the parent's sins? No. For if the child does what is just and right and keeps my decrees, that child will surely live. Do you understand what these verses are saying? That every single person has to pay for their own sins. Responsible for their own sins, a better word. Do you understand that it's easy to blame other people for our sins? When was the last time you heard someone say, well, that person made me angry? 
No, that person did not make you angry. They, they may have, you know, pushed the right buttons to, you know, cause you to be angry, but you chose to be angry. Or any sin, it doesn't matter, lying, you know, adultery, you know, stealing, all the things that we excuse away, right? They did, they did that because of this, right? It's so easy to excuse away sin. I, I did that because of this, or I, I did it because of what you did to me. And it's just like two little kids fighting on the playground for their adults or even spouses or even friends or whatever it is you know we can look at this and say they're you know they have no clue about what it means and we can do exactly the same thing we, we just dress it up in our modernality instead of blaming you know uh, someone else from a, you know, uh, in the scripture or something like that. We, we just go to a counselor and talk bad about our parents. It was your bad upbringing. It was your bad childhood. That's what's causing these things in your life. He continues on. Do you think that I like to see the wicked people die? Says the sovereign Lord. Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. Does God want to see people having to deal with the consequences of their own sin? No. That's why we have the Bible. That's, that's why we have the word of God in the first place. God, God gave us his word on purpose to protect us. And yet when we ignore the Bible, especially, you know, those amazing scriptures, whether it's in the Proverbs or, or in the New Testament, various scriptures that remind us that if you're acting like a fool, you're going to suffer the consequences of a fool. Where, where, where when we lie or cheat or steal or all the various things that we know inherently in our very soul are wrong, conviction of the Holy Spirit. And then we have to face the consequences for those sins. We blame someone else. That, that's exactly what's happening here. God, of course, doesn't want to see anyone have to suffer for their sins. He provides a way through his son, but because he is a righteous judge, he knows what it means to leave people in their sin, trying to bring them out. Thank God that he does in his perfect plan, in his perfect righteousness. Verse 24 describes it in this way. However, if righteous people turn from their righteous behavior and start doing sinful things and act like other sinners, should they be allowed to live? No, of course not. All their righteous acts will be forgotten and they will die for their sins. It's that pastor on the news. One thing, one night, what happens to an entire ministry? Boom. 
one adulterous affair and what happens? The consequences are severe. They're, they're literally crucified by the media. This once, you know, man of God who, who had a, an amazing, thriving ministry has now been reduced. And of course, discipline must take place. But it's all for one sin. The consequences of sin that can destroy a righteous person's life. Verse 25, thank God the opposite is true, by the way. Yeah, you say the Lord isn't doing what is right. Listen to me, O people of Israel. I Am I the one not doing what is right? It is you. When righteous people turn from their righteous behavior and start doing sinful things, they will die for it. Yes, they will die because of their sinful deeds. If the wicked turn from their wickedness, obey the law, and do what is just and right, they will save their lives. God turns prejudice on its head. God, God turns our own, you know, looking at the facade of a person and thinking of them as someone who is less than us because whether they don't go to church or, you know, dress a certain way or act a certain way or whatever it is, we look down on people. Can God change even the most vile of lives? Make them amazing. Use them for his glory. God loves doing that, by the way. They will live because they thought it over and decided to turn from their sins. Such people will not die. And yet the people of Israel keep saying, the Lord isn't doing what is right. God's unfair. It's a jealousy of our own hearts, the envy in our own hearts. So people of Israel, it is you who are not doing what is right. Not I. You know what offended the Jews the most? When God reached out to the Gentiles. When God reached out to us with not a single drop of Jewish blood in it. When God gave us grace. When God chose us. Because the Israelites, they were the, the chosen people of God. But God never meant to keep his grace and his, his love and his forgiveness in, in one place. It was meant to be used as a blessing to the nations, as he said to Abraham. to Gentiles, thank God, by the way, that God can forgive anyone despite the fact of theology or, you know, man's way of thinking. God can love the most vile of people, change their life. He is still fair. He is still righteous. You can do anything. Verse 30, therefore I will judge each of you, O people of Israel, according to your actions, says the sovereign Lord. Repent and turn from your sins. Don't let them destroy you. By the way, these are the people that are in Babylon, 900 miles away from their homeland. And God is still reaching out to them with his love. Put all your rebellion behind you. Find yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O people of Israel? I don't want you to die, says the sovereign Lord. Turn back and 
live? Is God still crying out to the people of Israel even today? But by the way, the book of Ezekiel is going to have a new temple. A greater description of the millennial kingdom temple than any other place in the entire Bible. Book of Revelation only has one verse on the millennial kingdom. Ezekiel is going to have eight chapters. And so when he describes this way of, of how God is going to specifically focus on the nation of Israel for a thousand years. Make them the apple of his eye, the center of the world for a, a thousand years. It's going to be described in great detail in the book of uh, Ezekiel. We'll get a little way through here in chapter uh, 19. It's very short, by the way. Again, written a couple of months after the previous uh, chapter, now turning to a funeral song. So we see this, this eagle uh, we see this description of, of uh, relationships between family members, and now we see a, a funeral song. I don't know when the last time you were at a funeral was. In our culture, in American culture, funerals are very, you know, uh, quiet events. In a lot of other cultures, especially in Israel, you would hire people to wail for you. You would hire people to cry. Because the more people that cried at a funeral, the louder the people were that were weeping at a funeral, it meant that that person was important. It meant that person's being missed, right? We always, you know, kind of keep it inside in our culture. We're more reserved. But if you come from an, another culture, you know, um, you know, I, I've been to funerals in the Philippines that are very, very vocal, you know, very, very, um, uh, a lot of weeping. Same thing happened in, happens in Israel too. So this isn't just a, a song. This is a, a wailing, a weeping song. Chapter 19, sing this funeral song for the princes of Israel. What is your mother, a lioness among lions? She lay down among the young lions and reared her cubs. She raised one of her cubs to become a young or a strong young lion, to learn to hunt and devour prey, and he became a man-eater. And the nations heard about him, and he was trapped in their pit. They led him away with hooks to the land of Egypt. Now, there's no explanation for this chapter. Again, this is a, a parable uh, describing uh, Israel and Judah. This first young lion is Israel, uh, trapped, uh, taken away, captive, scattered amongst the Assyrian uh, Empire in 722 uh, B.C. Verse 5 describes Judah, the southern kingdom. When the lioness saw that her hopes for him were gone, she took another of her cubs and taught him to be a strong young lion. He prowled among other lions and stood out from among them in his strength. He learned to hunt and devour prey, and he too became a man-eater. He demolished fortresses and destroyed their towns and their cities. Their farms were desolate and their crops were destroyed. The land and its people trembled in fear when they heard him roar. Do you see the picture of the lion? This majestic beast that literally terrorized the other nations because of his strength. 
Then armies of the nations attacked him, surrounded him from every direction. They threw a net over him and captured him in their pit with hooks. They dragged him into a cage and they brought him before the king of Babylon, who is the second lion. This is Judah, Jerusalem. Captured, taken to Babylon, this once great nation that was known for its prowess and strength is now reduced to a crying cat. They held him captive and his voice could never again be heard on the mountains of Israel. What happens when a lion loses its roar? Is it a lion anymore? They're, they're known for their, uh, literally, their, their echoing, roaring roar, right? That could be heard for miles at certain sound frequencies to animals, right? Where, where literally every animal on the savanna jumps when the lion roars. And what happens when a lion loses its roar? It just becomes a cat, right? That's all it is. Verse 10, we'll end it here tonight. Your mother was like a vine planted by the water's edge. It had lush green foliage because of the abundant water. Its branches became strong, strong enough to be a ruler's scepter. It grew very tall, towering above all others. It stood out because of its height. And its many lush branches. But the vine was uprooted in fury and thrown down to the ground. Just like the lion that loses its roar, what happens to a plant that is root uprooted out of the ground? It dies, right? The desert wind dried up its fruit and tore off its strong branches so that it withered was destroyed by the fire and how the vine is transplanted to the wilderness where the ground is hard and dry again this is jerusalem uprooted from jerusalem itself this lush land the land of milk and honey is now taken to babylon known for its arid climate a fire has burst out from its branches and devoured its fruit its remaining limbs are not strong enough to be a ruler's scepter. This is a funeral song, and it will be used in a funeral. What has happened to Jerusalem? This once strong, mighty nation, literally Jerusalem descended from a Judah known as the Lion of Judah, right? They were, they were known for their prowess, for their roar. And now what has happened to the nation? They're singing a funeral song over it. They're, they're weeping and wailing over this once great nation that has now been put into captivity, literally taken from their homeland for 70 years. They're going to live in a foreign country. When they come back, they're going to be hungry for God. 
For 70 years without a temple, for 70 years without an altar, for 70 years without a place to worship God, they're going to long to worship God again. And the first thing they're going to do is build a temple. Ezra and Nehemiah, they're going to come back. They're going to build a temple. Why? Because they want to worship God. Now, thank God we got, you know, building, but today, who's the temple of God? You are. You're the temple of God. Do you understand the privilege that we have as, as people that know a, a faithful God who is there for us literally every step of the way? When we rebel, He is faithful. When we are faithless, He is faithful. You are a temple of the holy and righteous God. And you are going to be a blessing to those around you. I don't know what your sphere of influence is like. I don't know your family or anything, but you might be the only light in that family. You might be the only light at your work. You might be the only light when you step into a certain place. Because you are the temple of a holy and righteous God. And this is our privilege now as the people of God to share that with others. Just like Israel was supposed to do. But just like Israel, when they don't use their gifts, what happens? God takes those gifts and gives it to someone else. And they get the blessings because of our disobedience. So tonight the challenge is don't be a lion without a roar. Don't, don't be a, a, a plant that's been uprooted. Use what God has given you, the talents, the abilities, the gifts that God has used, given to you for his glory. God will bless you for it. Thank you for being here tonight, Lord. I thank you so much for these, my friends, my family. I, I thank you not only for them giving up their nights when they could be doing anything else, but the privilege of, of knowing that your word never returns void, that we reread these amazing sections in, in the Bible, especially from the book of Ezekiel, these major prophets, the very few people ever read. And, and we have the privilege of being able to read them for ourselves. And understand in the amazing intimate way that you are with us. That we're your people for a specific purpose to go out and to reach others with your faithfulness. Lord, I thank you for these, my friends and my family, those that are watching online. I ask that you would bless them tonight, that you would redeem their time, that you would... Uh, give them that, whether it's that, that step of courage or, or that, that um, prick in their, their hearts from your Holy Spirit. How, however you, you use them, Lord, to, to reach out to someone else even this week. To be seen as the faithful one in the relationship. To be, to be seen as, as your uh, love to someone who... Um, may not be faithful or may even be um, harmful or, or even rebellious against others where we can show your love and faithfulness to someone else. So Lord, I ask that you convict us of that. Help us 
to reach out to others. Lord, I thank you so much for a faithful God that we can serve, that we can even come before at any time and know that we have access to the very throne room of God behind the veil. Lord, help us to never take that for granted. Help us to desire it even more, that we have a, a temple literally dwelling within us, the Holy Spirit filling us, using us for your glory. And that's what we pray for tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen and amen.